very much for singing his praises, lifting him high in music and in prayer. Um, if you would, please turn to Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 3. Now, Nehemiah chapter 3 is kind of a, kind of a chapter that uh, has a lot of names, so uh, I'll excuse myself again that if I pronounce a name phonetically correct but not correct, you just have to tolerate me. So there's a lot of names, a lot of just statements made in here. But trust me, we're going to glean from chapter 3, verse 1 through 32, uh, a lot of things that we're going to watch as they put their hands to the work. There will be a lot of names, a lot of things repeated. But you will, I believe you will see what I see when I pull it out. But uh, what I'd like to do is just read verse 1 and 2 if you want to stand for the reading of God's word of chapter 3 in Nehemiah. And then I'll have prayer. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priests, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it, hung its doors. They built as far as the tower of the hundred and consecrated it. Then as far as the tower of Hanal. Next to Eliashib, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zachar, the son of Amri, built. Let's pray. Dimly Father, as we take this text that's just a common names, tasks, over and over and over, help us to glean from it as it paints a picture of how they, they took their hands to the good work. Help us to glean from it truth that not only is there as they're living it out before us in the scripture, but how we will live it out put in our hands to the good work here at Calvary. And Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The last time we were in Nehemiah, Nehemiah had uh, come to Jerusalem, finally got there. If you remember, a pagan king paid for it all and even provided wood for him to build a house and everything. And a pagan king provided protection through, a, through guard and a letter of permission to be through, uh, to walk through a certain forest and everything. And now, when we were there, Nehemiah was there, and he, he got on his horse, his, his uh, uh, beast of burden, and he took a survey through Jerusalem on his own. He, went, he took a few men with him, but he took a solitude survey of the walls being burnt down, tore down in rubble. And as he took that solitude um, survey, there were some things on his heart that God was impressing on his heart when he would see these things. And one thing you've, you, you'll notice about Nehemiah from that last study is he didn't tell when he came back to the people to say, look, this is how I got here. God revealed some things to me, put this on my heart, the king paid for it. He didn't tell him everything that God had put on his heart because by the time we finished with Nehemiah, he's wanting to restore worship. Restore the reading of God's word. Restore the studying of God's word. He just looks at them and says, look, you've seen the destruction. You've seen the distress, the hopelessness. And that's all he did. He looked at the leaders and he said that. And he says, and we need to rebuild. And they simply said, that's a great vision. Let's shore up and rebuild. So they began to, they said, let's put our hands to the good work. And during that time, uh, as they said that, there were 
originally Sam 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 Bellet and Tobiah, but what happened was a third person showed up, <clears throat> and I was telling Crystal this morning, I'm gonna tell you what it is. When I get warm up here, my sinus drainage just dumps on my throat. I mean, it just dumps. Sometimes I got to do this because it's coming through my nose. So if you see me doing that, I need a. I'll grab me a, grab me a little paper towel here. Um, so I'm good at feeling a little cool up here. I don't have a jacket on, but um, and I do have a little water up here to wet my whistle. But when uh, originally it was just Sam Ballot and Tobiah, well, by the time they said, you know what, let's put our hands to the work, this good work, all of a sudden there were three that showed up. Three that showed up to uh, cast humor. Not only cast humor, but to uh, cast disgust towards Nehemiah and what he wants to do. You know, who do you think you are? Rebuilding the walls. We're just going to tell the king what you're doing. And this was Nehemiah's response, basically. He looked at those three outsiders who were poking fun, poking threats. They wrote a tattletale on him as if he did something wrong. And he basically said, God has set this in motion. Because earlier in the text it said that God was going to succeed. So God has set this in motion. And by his hand, we're going to succeed. And then he looked at the three naysayers, and he says, you have nothing to do with this, and you have nothing to do with God. So basically what he was saying, distance yourself, watch God, and watch us do this great thing. And, and he basically was saying, don't interfere with it. And you think about it. If God has asked you to do something and it's clear in God's word or it's clear in your heart from God's word what he has asked you to do, I mean, do you really think someone could stop you? I don't think so. If God puts something on your heart from the scripture and the Holy Spirit won't tell you anything outside of the scripture to do and someone just decides, you know what, I'm going to stop them from doing that, it ain't going to happen. Because if it's God's will to do something, we can't thwart it. We can't stop it. We can't, we can't put the brakes on it. We can resist it all we want to. And God says he, he resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. And anybody that wants to resist God, what he wants to do, that's basically what Nehemiah is saying. You have nothing to do with this. You have nothing to do with God. Just watch God work. So today in our text, it gives a, a very basic description of how the people put their hands to the work. And they do it together. They do it united. And what we're going to do is glean from the text what it looked like as they built and rebuilt and restored and, and, and created things and, and rebuilt the walls. And you notice they started with the walls. Remember that? Later on, we're going to find out they're rebuilding the temple and doing all this other stuff. They started with the walls. Why? The walls is where the city's protected. The wall was where the gates are, where people come in and people come out. And it was so vulnerable at that time. And so what I want to do is I want to look at verse 1 through 5 first, <clears throat> concerning they set their hands to the good work. In verse 1 through 5, they rise up and build together. Look at verse 1 through 5 of chapter 3. They rise up and build together. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priests, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. 
they built as far as the Tower of the Hundred and consecrated it. Then as far as the Tower of Hanal. Then, next to Eliashib, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zechor, the son of Amri, built. Verse 3. Also, the sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Urijah, the son of Koz, made repairs. Next to them, Meshulam, the son of Barachiah, or Kiah, the son of Meshazabel, say that ten times, made repairs. Next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, made repairs. Next to them, the, the Tekoites made repairs. But the nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of the Lord. In verse 1 through 5, they rose up. They had already said, let's do, let's put our hands to this good work. And even though there were naysayers, those poking fun, those that were outsiders that said, yeah, it can't be done. What do you think you're doing? We're just going to tattletale on you and everything. They rose up and began to build together. They started the work by what? Getting up. I remember when we were at Valley View Baptist Church, Brother Bill, Betty's husband, might be leading music. And we would be singing the song, you know, Standing on the Promises, right? He'd say, get off your premises and let's stand on the promises, and we'd sing that song. And, you know, these guys got off their premises, right? And they stood up, they rose up, and began to work. They started the work by getting up themselves, not saying, well, someone else will do it. They rose up and did what was at hand. I'm reminded of Moses when he was going to deliver God's people finally when God convinced him he had to go and do that, and he was convincing uh, Moses. And Moses, well, how am I going to do that? He said, what do you have in your hand? And he just told Moses, use what you have at hand. And, of course, it was that staff. Well, I don't know what staff you have in your hand. I don't know what skill you have. I don't know what talent you have. I don't know what gift you have. But listen, as we build, we're going to rise up, and whatever gift, talent, or resource you have that God lays in your heart to submit to the work, that's what you're going to do. You're going to rise up and use that gift, that talent, that resource, and we're going to build together. And, and you're not going to say, well, I'll hold on to this gift, talent, resource because someone else will do it. That's not what they did. It says they rose up and started getting busy about the work. They didn't wait for someone else to step up to the plate. And as they started to work by just simply getting up, doing what they can do, not waiting on anybody else to do their work first, they also devoted the work by setting it apart to God. Because it says when they built certain things, they, then they consecrated it. They prayed over they said it. That they saw this as a work of the Lord. Now, somebody might say, well, it's just a wall. But those walls, remember, were there for protection. Also, not only protection, but it showed the boundaries. And it, and, and it surrounded it. It, it gave a, um, a panoramic surface to where... God was going to be central in worship there in the temple. You ever wondered why churches are structured the way they are, at least a Baptist church? Why in a Baptist church the pulpit is pretty much well right here in the middle, right? 
Now, I've been in a few Presbyterian churches where this pulpit is over here for whatever reason. I don't know the Presbyterian uh, logic behind that. But yet my son is a youth pastor at a Presbyterian Church of America, and their pulpit's right in the middle. But the reason, there's a reason why it's in the middle, right? Because we believe that whatever's happening here, whether it's leading the congregation in music or someone coming forward to, uh, to pray or obviously me coming to the sacred desk to preach the word, it's the central focus of everything we're doing because hopefully with the prayers and the music and the word, we're, we're focused on God. And, of course, your pulpit happens to be a cross, which is a symbol, right? But also up in the baptistry behind that, there's, there's different things. And, and it's all symmetrical, you know? There's not just, like, this much of a pew and then a bunch of pews over here. It's all symmetrical. It, it's created uh, to, to create the idea of bringing attention and, and focusing on what co- goes on up here. Well, it's the same way with Jerusalem. They had walls, they had gates that had different purposes and different... Uh, merchants come in and out and everything and and all that surrounded the central place the temple where they would go and worship God and that's ultimately what Nehemiah is going to restore but they begin to rise up and build together they started by getting up they 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 were devoted and setting it apart to the Lord and they continued the work giving each one of them areas of responsibility because one took this area to this gate one took this area to that tower. They all had responsibilities. It wasn't so much delegated by Nehemiah. It was just them taking responsibility and saying, oh, I'm going to take care of this, and you're going to take care of that. And then they just began to step up beside each other. Once the first group stepped up and rose up, the other one stepped up and rose up with them and took their responsibility. So the first thing we see is that as they set their hands to the good work, they had to raise up and begin to build together. They just had to do that. I mean, uh, I, I've been in churches before where this needs to be done, that needs to be done, and, uh, and it's fine to discuss things, but sometimes you can discuss things till, till November, right? And just nobody ever gets up, nobody ever volunteers, nobody even says, well, I got a resource, or I got an idea, or I know a friend. They just sit there. They just sit there, and they sit there, and then when it doesn't get done, they want to blame the deacon, they want to blame the pastor, they want to blame you, blame this person, or blame that committee that started that committee, and pretty soon, it becomes disorganized, divided, discord. Now listen, it takes all of us, that's why we're called a local body, right? Christ is the head, and we're a body. And I don't know if God's called you to be a nose, a hand, a foot, necessarily, all those things, but... You're in that body because it says God placed you in the body as it pleased the Holy Spirit. So think about this for a moment. I don't know what body part you are, right, in this local body, but did you know you're in that body exactly where God placed you in the body? Not me, not anybody. He placed you there in this local body because God wanted you there. You know what that tells me? That tells me you're valuable, valuable to God, valuable to the body. And so these men, these people, they rose up to build together. Then in verse 6 through 13, I'm going to slaughter some more names here. 6 through 13, 
they not only rose up to build together, but they repaired and pushed forward. They repaired and pushed forward. Look at verse 6 through 13 with me. Moreover, or in addition to all this going on, moreover, Jehoiada, the son of Passei, and Mishalem, the son of Besadiah, repaired the old gate. Does someone want to volunteer to name these names? But anyways, I'll, I'll keep slaughtering them. They laid its beams and hung its doors with, with its bolts and bars. That means they were, they were securing these doors, these gates. And then it says in, um, look at verse 8 with me. Next to him, Uziel, the son of Harhiah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs. Also, uh, it says, also next to him, uh, let's see, also next to Hananiah, one of the perf perfumers made repairs, and they fortified Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. And next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, leader of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Haramuth, made repairs in front of his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashaniah, made repairs. Malchijah, the son of Harim, and Hashub, the son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section, as well as the tower of the ovens. And next to him was Shalom, the son of Halahash, leader of half the district of Jerusalem, he and his daughters made repairs. All of a sudden, females were mentioned, right? Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They built it, hung its doors with its bolts and bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the refuse gate. What do all these words mean? Well, they repaired and pushed forward. By, number one, securing the gates of entry. They were, they were rebuilding gates and putting bars and bolts on them. They were securing the entry areas and the exit areas. They were repairing residences of the leadership. They were even tracking these repairs by measurements. Because it said there that they repaired a thousand cubits of the wall. They had a way of gauging and measuring all that they were repairing. Did you know we have ways to gauge what we do, right? You know, we call it noses and nickels, right? The last two Sundays before this Sunday, well, minus that one we were out of town, I know we had about 26 in Sunday school. This morning we had 24 in Sunday school. And it's not that that's super important, but it's just kind of nice to know how many was here, right? It's a good way to gauge. Do we need more room or you know, whatever? It's a good way to gauge. We also, uh, I mean, I see Jill every day, you know, calculating stuff and everything to pay bills. We have a finance committee to make sure things like that are, are rolling good, to measure things, measure, measure not only what we're saving, but also what's going out. So they had a way to measure their walls and how far they were getting along. They tracked the repairs by measurement, by, by cubits. They, they rose up and built together, and they repaired things and pushed forward. You begin to see a unity. You begin to see a pattern here. 
Everybody had a responsibility. Everybody had a role. Everybody had a spot. Everybody was putting their hands to the good work. And it means everybody was putting their hands to the good work. Not just certain people. Not just the vocational ministers. Not just the professionals. Not just those that are paid. They're leading the way, and we'll see that next. Look at verse 14 through 25. They rose up and built together. They repaired and pushed forward. Verse 14 through 25, they reached and set goals. They reached and set goals. Look at verse 14 through 25 with me. Melchijah, the son of Rechab, leader of the district of Beth, Hecarim repaired the refuse gate. He built it and hung its doors and its bolts and bars. Shalom, the son of Jose, leader of the district of Mizpah. See, they're starting to list leaders now, right? You see that? Repaired the fountain gate. He built it, covered it, hung its doors with its bolts and bars, and repaired the wall of the pool of Shelah by the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, that's the man with the vision, right? That's the man that's, that, that's heading this up. Says, leader of half the district of Bethzer, made repairs as far as the place in front of the tombs of David, to the man-made pool, as far as the house of the all of the mighty, after him, the Levites under Rehum, the son of Bani, made repairs. Next to him, Hashabiah, leader of half the district of Kelah, made repairs for his district. After him, their brethren under Bave, the son of Hinadad, leader of the other half of the district of Kelah, made repairs. And next to him, Ezor, or Azor, the son of Jeshua, the leader of Mizpah, repaired another section in front of the accent of the armory at the buttress. After him, Barach, the son of Zabai, carefully repaired the other section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest, another leader. After him, Merimoth, the son of Urijah, the son of Koz repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. You see how they're all connected maybe from this place to, to what David's doing, to what Ken's doing tonight, and they start connecting. They start really getting it together. Verse 22 through 25. And after him, the priests, the men of the plain, made repairs. After him, Benjamin and Hashub made repairs opposite their house. So they're living there. After them, Azariah, the son of Messiah, the son of Ananiah, made repairs by his house. After him, Benu, the son of Hinadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress, even as far as the corner. You know, if you're doing a puzzle, it's good to start at a corner, right? Well, they're finding a corner now. Palau, the son of Uzal, made repairs opposite the buttress and on the tower, which projects from the king's upper house. That was the court of the prison. After him, 
Pedaiah, the son of Parash, made repairs. Now, I know I'm just reading a lot of this, a lot of that, a lot of names that I'm slaughtering and everything. But once again, they began to reach and set goals. Because all of a sudden, Kim was just about finished with his stuff by his house, and David picked up from there to work by his house. And then all of a sudden, Bill and Phyllis said, okay, well, we'll take this over here with Daryl, and we'll build to our house. They began to set goals. They began to see some progress. They began to really get excited. They had leadership, as we saw in the text. They had leadership that was playing their role. Not just as leadership, but putting their hands to the plow, putting their hands to the tools. They had leadership playing their roles. They had leadership sharing the load. And they had leadership leading their way. One of the things you'll never find me do is to ask you to do something that I'm not willing to do myself. Now, I know there's only certain things that only the pastor can do, but if it's something very common and, and I'm willing to do it, then I wouldn't ask you to do it if I'm not willing to do it. Now, it's not a, it's not a brag on me, but I was in the first buildings and grounds, and there was something about a doorknob over there, and I said, well, I can do a doorknob. You know, it's no big deal. It's just a screwdriver, and I kind of enjoyed it. You know, it's just a doorknob. But, but why wouldn't I be willing to do that if I had the time to do it? Instead of just waiting for Ken to get off work after working all day or someone like that, to come down there and put down a doorknob. Now, if it was beyond my skill set, I'd say, hmm, I wouldn't volunteer, right? I'll be there to help to hang you tools, you know, whatever. But, you know, the leadership obviously was playing their role. And I believe because the leadership was stepping up, playing a role, carrying their load, and was leading the way, they began to reach and set goals of re building and shoring up and securing the walls of Jerusalem. And last but not least, they not only rose up to build together, they repaired and pushed forward. They reached and set goals, but in verse 26 through 32, they continued the work and they dwelt there. You begin to see some of them were building around their house, but they begin to start living there because it was starting to shape up to where they could live there. They continued the work and dwelt there. Look at verse 26 through 32, and I'll slaughter some more names. Moreover, the Nithanim who dwelt in Ophel, or Ophel, made repairs as far as the place in front of the water gate toward the east and on the projecting tower. After then, the Tekoites repaired another section. Remember, they were mentioned earlier repairing a section. Now they're taking on another section. Took on another section next to the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Beyond the horse gate, the priests made repairs, each in front of his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Emmer, made repairs in front of his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, made repairs. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanan, Hanan, the sixth son of Zaloth, repaired another section. After him, Meshalem, the son of Berachiah, or Kiah, made repairs in front of his dwelling. After him, Mal. 
Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of Nithanim and of the merchants in front of the Mithkad gate, as far as the upper room at the corner, another corner, you see. And between the upper room and the corner, as far as the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants made repairs. And it sounds like a bunch of rhetoric. It's one of those Old Testament texts where we're just saying this name, and they did this, and that name, and they did that. But it's painting a picture here, folks. It's a painting a picture that, first of all, they rose up to build together. They repaired and pushed forward. They began to reach and set goals because leadership stepped up to the plate and says, let me do my part. Let me carry that load. Let me lead the way. And they continued to this work and began to dwell there. They picked up where the others ended. If one was working on this section and ended this, okay, I'll pick it up and go from there because all of a sudden we began to see names starting to get repeated. They were really taking ownership. They picked up where the others ended up. They lived by where the others lived. And they took sections. And they took responsibility. And they took ownership of whatever they said, that's what my hands are going to get busy at. So as we see these, um, these drab verses of all these names I slaughtered and all the things they did, we see them take their hands to the good work because they rose up to work. They began to cooperate. They began to push forward. They began to measure and set goals. If I get this section, maybe you can get that one. They began to work together. Now, what if they would have said, uh, what if Nehemiah that day said, I took a survey and you see the desolation. You sense the hopelessness. And I think we need to rebuild the walls. And someone raises their hand in the crowd and says, we need to check with the right committee on that. And then that committee gets together and they have a, a meeting. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with committees, okay? I'm not, getting, I'm not going down that road. But let's say then the committee says, well, I don't know. What do you think? Versus these people heard a man say, I have, I have a dream, I have a vision for God's people to restore the walls of Jerusalem for the glory of God, for the, to worship the one only true God. And I'm sure they had to hash out some details because certain people can only do certain things, right? Skill sets. Obviously, we even read one text where certain people didn't put, it says there uh, that the nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of the Lord. So there were some people who says, I don't want part of that. I don't know if it's because they didn't have skill sets. I don't know if it's because they were lazy. I don't know if it's because, well, we just don't dirty our hands. I don't have a clue why they did. It just said they decided not to. The nobles just decided not to. And sometimes you've got to say, well, I guess that is what it is, you know, because some people just don't. They're, they're, like, they're, they're like fifth graders. They don't play well with others. And so these people rose up. And began to repair, push forward, join together, reach certain um, successes, and set goals, give out measurements. They began to work and live together right there. That's no different than you and I. 
here at Calvary Baptist Church. Now, I know some people live out west, and I live on the... I, somebody lives on the west coast, I live on the east coast, and there's everybody in between. And some on the south, you know, all that kind of stuff. I get all that. But the point is, we come together to what? To live together, to live before God together on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and, of course, other times, especially if I'm able to get into your home and visit with you and pray with you or meet you in some other situation besides just a worship situation. But the point is, is that we've come here to, to, to build the idea that we want a place for people to come and worship the one and only true God through prayer, through singing, through the preaching of God's word, through fellowship, through hugs, cries, kisses, and, and prayers, and just getting to know each other to live out our lives. One of the things that you'll notice about me uh, since I started in December is that I used the month of December to visit all my shut-ins and anybody that was in a uh, facility, or maybe some of my senior adults that aren't shut-ins. I did that on purpose on the even month. We're doing the odd month during January, and I haven't finished up this month, so if you haven't gotten a handwritten letter from me, it's just because I haven't finished it till this week. But every odd month, I'm going to write every member that's on my directory a handwritten letter. Every, even, every odd month. So in March, look forward to another letter from your pastor, a handwritten letter. Okay? But at the same time, on that odd month, I'm still going to visit my two facility members like Brother Bailey and Sister Linda. Because, and I even wrote Linda a letter one time, and she was going, when I went to see her, she was going to write me a letter back. I said, well, bless your heart. But I, I, I truly believe that if, if I just go around this corner and sit in my ivory tower all the time, how can I really get to know you? How can you get to know me? I mean, you probably have figured me out a little bit just by how I act behind the pulpit, but it's, it's in those moments that I maybe look at Valerie and go, and give her a hard time or something like that, that she kind of figures who I am beyond just the preacher. But, and, and, and one thing you'll notice, too, is that when I'm doing that to Valerie or Crystal or teasing or something, I, like I even did it to Joel today, tonight, because he was upset that I was late in my Dickens meeting to get the headset. I went, Rawr. but, you know, I'm that way out there, but I'm the same here because I'll tease you from here. I try to be myself, but if I'm sitting in the ivory tower and I'm not in your home or in your life outside of here, how can we really get to know each other so that when you do have a crisis or you have some great celebration, you won't feel connected to me to say, oh, we need to call him and let him see our new grandbaby. Because you're just going to say, well, I'll just go and see him on Sunday mornings. There's a lot of, a lot of churches, and I know that there's at least one, two, three, four... When I first moved to Inola in 2001, there were seven, within a 10-mile radius, seven Southern Baptist churches. Some small, some big, and, and every one of them kind of had their different gifts and everything. Now there's about four or five of them. But there's one thing I can tell you about those pastors that are different than your pastor besides their, their higher education. They're not going to knock on your door unless you're dying. I did the funeral for my pastor that I was saved under a week ago Wednesday. And I did it in his church where he was a member. And his pastor had a small part because Brother Bob had already told me I was his pastor. You know why? 
because for almost five years that he was a member there and three years he was sick at home all the time. The pastor only came twice in his 90s. He only came twice to that man. And you know what he came for? Pick up that tithe check. Where in the last year or two since COVID kind of, I guess, went away or whatever it did, I would show up about every three months to go visit Brother Bob and Doris. And me and Karen are going to be making a visit soon to Doris because she said, I asked Doris at the funeral, I said, can I come see you, Doris? She goes, only if you bring Karen. I said, oh, we'll have to do that on a Saturday. I'll do that on a Saturday, Miss Doris. I'm going to tell you something. His pastor, if you go down 76th Street North to Highway 75 and go two miles to 96th Street North, five miles, that's how close his full-time pastor is. And that breaks my heart. Because the man I did a funeral for is a very godly man. He served his country in the Air Force. He was a master sergeant. He served the Lord for 38 years after that. He mentored me. I was under his tutelage for salvation, baptism, licensing. He did me and Karen's marriage. This was interesting in our, in our marriage that when I met Karen, he knew he was going to get married, and we already set the date, so he wanted to give us some counsel. Remember that, Karen? Marriage counsel? This was Brother Bob's marriage counsel. I sat down in his room, and she sat down, and it was just before Sunday school. He goes, you love this boy, girl? Yeah. You love this girl, boy? Yeah. Get out of my office. About all the counsel we got. Thanks for the heads up, Brother Bob. But, you know, he cared about us because about 10 years ago, he was rummaging through some. He would, he would type his sermon notes on little small pieces of paper. He would type it. He had our wedding vows stored away, and he mailed it to us, and we put it in there with her dress. He kept records like that. He was a godly man, and it breaks my heart that he was a member of a church where they had a full-time pastor, and he only saw him twice in five years in their home, and that's just because he needed to pick up a tithe check. If I come to your house and you feel like you really have to give me a check to bring to Jill, I'm okay with that. It will go straight to Jill, but that's not why I'm there. That is not why I'm there. I will be there because I care. I will be there because you're important. You're valuable to the body. And that's why it's important in this cheesy names that I slaughtered and everything. It's painting a picture of a people that looked at Nehemiah and said, let's do it. And they did what they could, what was at hand, and they worked together, they set goals, the leadership stepped in, did their part, and then they began to dwell together, to live together with that concept, let's worship God. Let's restore the idea of worshiping well and true God. They set their hands to this good work, believing God would bring them success in spite of the critics. That's what they did here. They put their hands to work believing that God would cause them to succeed in this building and this restoration and these repairs in spite of whatever Sam Ballot, Tobiah, and their other friend was saying. And we're going to see in the book of Nehemiah that there's seven times that Sam Ballot, Tobiah, and maybe a couple other people, they're always doing something to cause either doubt 
cast a long shadow over what they're doing, maybe even cause discord or threaten. You know what that is? That's just the devil. Uh, I had a class reunion in 2022. We finally had one. And we had worked on it for two years because of COVID, right? We worked on it for two years. Constant, 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 having meetings when we could. And we were just about a month before we're there. We already had the tickets out and everything. We're about a month there. Well, this person said, well, I was wondering, blah, 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 blah. Well, this person that was in control of all the purse strings, this person that was in control of all the tickets said, no, we're not doing that. I don't care what you say. And if anybody else votes with him, I'm leaving. And I'm sitting there going, oh, my, my gosh, you know, it's been two and a half years. Are we so you know what this person did? They did the right thing for the group. They said, I'll, I'll back off. And they just backed off. They had a good point, but they backed off for the sake of the whole thing. I think lots of times in a church, we can do some of the same things. We begin to threaten, I'll do this, I'll do that, to get our way instead of saying, you know what, if we're not, on the, not all on the same page, let's just not do anything. There's nothing wrong with that in a situation. <clears throat> God's people, we, <clears throat> we build on the rock. That rock is Jesus, the eternal creator of all things, the eternal <clears throat> son of God, the eternal savior and redeemer. He's the eternal shepherd that leads all the way. You know, when we say God leads us all the way, do you really know what that means? That means that <clears throat> if there's a valley of shadow of death out there somewhere that brings a lot of anxiety, he's not going to say, now, Steve, I'm your shepherd. I need you to just walk through that valley. You know what he does? He says, Steve, there's a valley of shadow of death over there. Follow me. And he leads the way. Nothing catches God by surprise. And as we stand on the rock, Jesus Christ, who is the great shepherd, who leads all the way. He doesn't send us to do something. He goes with us. We can begin to be a people of devotion together, a people of finding a place within our local fellowship, a people that are looking for example of leadership and sweat equity, and a people that say, you know what? I'm going to be responsible for this. I'm taking ownership for that. That's what we can do. As we work, we will work together. We will do that work discerningly and patiently. We will do that work based off your role, my role, our roles, based off our gifts, talents, and place. We will do it with personal commitment. And during that time, God will not only allow resistance, but he will demand sometimes even sacrifice. But he will make it come to pass. He will make it come to pass in his time, for his glory, and by his own ways. Sometimes we think maybe we need to do X, Y, or Z, and we decide on Y. Maybe we decide on why, and it just ain't working, it ain't working, it ain't working. Well, maybe we need to back up from why and say, okay, God, why is the why not working? And then maybe later on down the road, as we pray about it, God says, well, there's nothing wrong with why, but I'm setting you on the track for Z. 
Sometimes we put the cart before the horse, don't we? Other times, the horse is in the proper place, and we just need to go with God. We need to work with the light that he's given us. That's what it means to a believer as we put our hands to the good work. How would this apply to a non-believer, someone that doesn't know Jesus Christ? Well, as a non-believer, they need to know that they're like Sam Ballot and Tobiah. They have no part in any eternal purpose because they're condemned without God. They have no part of purpose. They have no part of pleasing God. They have no part in, in God's equation of what he's doing with the church other than the fact that they're hearing the gospel and God is calling them to come to the church, to come to Christ. And the bride says, come and be saved. So a lost person must understand that until they come to Christ, they have no eternal purpose. That was one of the greatest things that overwhelmed me when I first became a Christian besides just being happy because I knew I was set free. I began to sense and grow in my sense of purpose in life. I wasn't just a steel fabricator. I was a steel fabricator that was living out my skill for the glory of God and being a witness and praying. And so a lost person really has no purpose. when they're con Their only purpose is to be, to be in their own condemned state to die without God. So a lost person needs to seek God. They need to realize they're a critic. Whether they realize it or not, the Bible says if you're not in Christ, you are an enemy of God. You're at odds with God. You need to be reconciled. And therefore, the lost person needs to hear the church that's building, the church that's working together, that there is a way, and that is to come to Christ for salvation. So we would invite anybody that's lost, anyone that has not known Christ as their Savior, to know that they could come to Christ and find a new nature, find a new hope, find a new desire, a new purpose, find new direction. Because dead men do nothing but lay there, and they're dead in their sins. But when God resurrects them, they get direction. They're empowered for the purpose of God and the glory of God. So we would pray that a lost person would come to know Christ. Well, how are they going to know Christ unless we go, right, as we build and share with them that Christ is the truth, he is the way, he is the life. So what I would like to do is just close us in prayer. And what I want to pray for is those lost people perhaps that are on your mind. Maybe you have a name or a face. I know I have some names and faces in my heart and my mind. And I want to pray for those lost people. And then I want to pray for us, how we're going to engage those lost people. Let's pray. Dearly Father, we come to you tonight. And Father, each and every one of us have a mind, a, a, a face or a name of someone that we know does not know you. And Father, we desperately want them to be saved. We desperately perhaps have even talked to them about salvation. But right now, Father, we're setting aside some time to take that name, take that individual. And Father, we know that without Christ, they are dead in sin. They're blind. 
They're lame. They can't come to God on their own. So, Father, we pray that you would bring someone like us, that the Spirit of God would go before us and prepare the soil of that heart. And as we throw the seed on that heart, Father, we pray that those seeds would germinate and bear fruit of repentance, some 30-fold, some 60, some 100-fold, but, Father, that it would bear fruit of repentance and faith. Father, whatever you have to do to bring them to a place they need to be, and we'll let you define that, where they will hear your voice, sense your tugging, cry out to you. Wherever you need to take them, Father, take them there. We pray that we're there to be encouragers. We pray that we're there to engage them with, with the loving gospel. But if not, Father, bring another person that way. Take that lost individual wherever they need to be to get to a place where they will come to their senses as the prodigal son and come running to the Father, not even realizing he has always been waiting for them. We pray for that lost person that they would come to you. Father, we pray for ourselves that we would be patient we will be faithful farmers as we throw seeds. We will be patient farmers and throw the seed and go and lay our head down and wake up to look and see if there's a sprout. But we'll be patient and faithful. And we'll trust you for the fruit. We'll trust you to accomplish your purpose in all those in encounters that we have with lost people. We'll trust you, Father, and depend on you to awaken their spirit. In the meantime, Father, encourage us. Empower us. Give us opportunity. Give us the words to say. Give us the words that we need to pray. Prepare our hearts, Father, to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us. So, Father, as we put our hands to this good work we call Calvary Baptist Church, Help us to play our role. Help us to take responsibility, whatever that may be. Help us to use every gift, talent, resource, ideas. And help us to come together, Father, and pluralistically agree that we must be busy and occupy until you come. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.